Hello and welcome to Better Than Fine on the NASM Podcast Network. I'm your host, Arlene Marshall. And when you dip your big toe, just your big toe, into the wellness space, you might notice that there's a few challenges down that road. Well, for one, the word wellness can sometimes feel ambiguous, right? What does wellness even mean? And it, sometimes it seems like there's just everybody out there on the internet slapping the label wellness on themselves. So it waters down. What does wellness really mean to us? Sometimes the wellness space can feel like it's not really backed in anything sciencey, uh, and maybe it's even a little bit self-helpy. And oftentimes, the really impactful things to our wellness, to our clients' wellness, well, they're not, they're not as sexy as mm, special mushroom supplements and widgets and magically seeming spiritual practices or like fancy expensive retreats with some influencer. So things like water and good sleep and getting movement every day, working on your emotional intelligence or your stress response. Like that, those things don't seem exciting compared to like flying off to Bali on a yoga retreat, which sounds pretty great right now, actually. Uh, and my guest today knows that tension, that space, that big toe dipping in the what is this really all too well. We own a brand ween. It's a master's in applied positive psychology from the University of Pennsylvania, where she is currently the associate director of education at the Positive Psychology Center. And that provides oversight to the MAP program, as well as the applied positive psychology undergraduate certificate. She was the 2021 recipient of the UPenn Liberal and Professional Studies Award for Distinguished Teacher in Graduate Programs. She's on the Council of Advisors for the International Positive Psychology Association and is a scientific advisor for Trellis Health. She's also on the board of Shining Light, which is an organization that leverages positive psychology to build the well-being of incarcerated individuals. She served as a coach and a consultant for national healthcare performance improvement projects. She's worked on employee wellness and community health initiatives. She's a runner, a cyclist. She's deeply loved by her family. Uh, she supports youth. Yeah, let's try that sentence again. Supports youth sports in her community and supports her daughter as crew for her triathlons. And in my experience of her as a mentor who's helped me navigate this, this overlapping space of fitness, wellness, well-being, she's just a very good person. Uh, and she seems to do all of that with grace and patience. She is an example to many of us in this space. Leona, welcome to Better Than Fine. It's been a long time coming, my friend, and I'm so excited to have you. Oh my goodness, Darlene, that was just about the most extraordinary introduction ever. And I was sitting here thinking to myself, where is my mom who probably still doesn't know what I do for a job? And it would have been wonderful for her to hear that. So thank you. Thank you. It was lovely. Absolutely. I've got that and more in my experience and opinion of you. Um, so welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you uh, for so many reasons, but let's just start, start other than the formal introductions. Let's share with the listeners your story. How did you end up in this Venn diagram that kind of, I feel like we both have found ourselves in of fitness, wellness, well-being space? 
Yeah, yeah, great question. So um, I need to go back a little bit. Um, so my, I will say my daughter's a Gen Zer, and I've picked up some Gen Z terms from her, so I might pepper <laughs> those in. Please do. Um, and I'll say that I was part of the OG squad when it came to corporate wellness, uh, which was back in the early 90s. So I worked for the travelers insurance companies. I had graduated with a, an undergraduate in exercise physiology, and I was really interested in how we could prevent some of the um, some of the outcomes that we were seeing in, uh, in terms of the chronic illnesses that were only beginning to really climb at that point and began to, um, and of course now are, are burgeoning. So I worked for the travelers insurance companies. That was the heyday of corporate wellness. And so they were investing really heavily in how to keep their employees well. And part of the reason that they were doing that is because as a self-insured organization, they had access to claims data so they could prove it because they had actuaries that were studying this. And so um, through some of their work, right, they discovered that for every dollar that they were investing in a wellness program for their employees, it was returning something like $3.40 on the dollar. Um, so that's not a small amount. Um, and so they continued to invest in that. And it wasn't just insurance companies, it was, it was other organizations too. Over time, my career started to look at um, not only some of the behavioral um, drivers of well-being, but also sociocultural drivers of well-being. So our communities and what surrounds us is very important to our ability to flourish and be well. And so I did some a lot of work in community health um, and, uh, and gradually ended up working, moving from healthcare, right, from the very preventive end of it um, to the very um, curative end of it as we were working uh, with helping and supporting people who are in ICUs. So I know that that's a lot, right? Um, but <laughs> at the end of the day, it is this Venn diagram of thinking about how um, these things that we call humans, right? Who we are, which is, if you think about it, like every once in a while, it's this awe-striking moment of, oh my gosh, when you think about how complicated our bodies are and how uniquely they have evolved in this dance and uh, exchange between us and the environment, um, but how um, humans can really flourish um, in our context, in our environment, which of course, is what led me to study positive psychology and the study of well-being. Thank you. I, you know, you say like, oh, it's, it seems like a lot, but it is a lot and it's, it deserves ex exploring because I think it's so easy for someone who, you know, is a millennial or is Gen Z to not necessarily realize, you know, as, as one of the OG. For us, wellness programs at a corporate level are so ubiquitous that the origin story of, oh, well, it came from data about ROI, right? Return on investments that if you put money into your people, you'll get uh, more back in terms of fewer claims, but also higher productivity. And so it's, it's helpful, I think, to have that like origin story, not just of you, but of this space that we're now occupying. And in the intro, I talked about the ambiguity in wellness. Do you want to kind of speak to that like amorphous nature over the time that you've spent <laughs> in this space? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I will say, you know, one of the interesting things, and I'm just going to um, pick at something you said there around the ROI, yeah. right? So when we started talking about ROI, we were really talking about cost savings, right? We were talking about how to reduce claims data, how to reduce the number of hospital visits, the number of ER visits, the number of visits to a PCP or an ambulatory care specialist, right? So really, really um, finitely looking at the cost of healthcare care um, and how we could uh, manage and reduce that. 
That to me is on the cost savings side of the ledger, right? But one of the things that we didn't look at was what was on the other side of the ledger, um, which, uh, which was really around what's the, um, in a business context, what's the revenue producing side of the ledger? And that is, right, that people, employees who are vital, who are healthy, who are happier in their lives overall, um, are actually more engaged at work, right? They, um, so it's not only, it's this virtuous cycle of what is good for the employee is also good for the employer. I would say back in the day, there was this attitude that employees who were exercising in the wellness facility at work weren't attending to their job, right? And that, and that was like, <laughs> a question of like, oh, work out, but don't do it too much, right? Because we want you back at your desk, right? Uh, working on, on your TPS report. So um, it was, really, <laughs> um, you know, so it was, I would say that we've really evolved over time, right? And really thinking about not only what are the things that we're trying to reduce, right? But the things we're trying to increase. And so from that standpoint, I think wellness has gone from um, what started in a really medical model of how do we stop some of these terrible things from happening to how do we increase some of these things that we really know um, help to make our lives, our workplaces, our communities this much better. Yeah, I appreciate you unpacking that because you know the title of this episode is Many Kinds of Wellness. And I think it's so easy for people who are passion driven into this space, like, oh, I'm going to help people to not necessarily think about the initial motivations for companies investing in wellness were really driven by, um, you know, avoidance of expenditure. And now oftentimes we encounter it's driven by, uh, you know, what are my employees going to get out of it? Are they going to be more productive? Are they going to be, are they going to have fewer sick days? So I'm getting more out of the investment in the employee. And I think it's helpful for somebody who might be going into that corporate kind of wellness Wednesday lunch and learn, like trying to tap into that market to just be aware that they're going to be expected to say, well, this is what is going to benefit not just the people, but also the employer. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, um, I'll even say like so, so many things have evolved, right? And so many things have changed in the past 25 years. So even the metric of absenteeism, right? And sick days, um, as there's been this massive shift, right? In the, um, in the world of shifting from um, separate sick time and separate vacation time to even just this lumping together of paid time off. Well, you know, what are humans going to do? They're going to try and preserve their paid time off for vacations (laughs) and for fun things, right? And so when they get sick, what are they going to do? They're going to drag themselves to work. And are they less productive? Um, For sure, right? Um, And so there's this concept that's called, um, you know, balancing absenteeism, this concept of presenteeism, where you show Mm. up face out at work, or you're just not productive because you either don't feel well, or you've got, um, you know, a myriad of other things that are going on in your life from, you know, family issues um, on down the line. So, um, so I think it's complicated, right? When we think about wellness, and when I think about what contributes to people's ability to be well, I have a hard time thinking of anything that doesn't, right? Um, Because nearly everything does. Yeah, certainly in the worlds that you and I move in, we're uh, intimately familiar with the many things that enhance wellness. Uh, and your listener, you're listening to the Better Than Fine podcast. We're here to talk about the many kinds of wellness with my friend and mentor, Leona Brandween. Um, and, you know, Leona, you and I have talked about in the past that uh, we've at various times felt like the unpopular, uncool kid, uh, I think is what you called it, in this fitness wellness space, uh, partly because we're not out there selling mushroom coffees. Uh, do you want to speak a little bit to what that's been like for you and why you say that you're like the, you know, the unpopular kid on the playgrounds? 
first I have to ask, what is a mushroom coffee and why haven't I, why have I not had one? So that's well, good. the makers of that coffee don't support this show. So I'm not going to pitch any particular brand, but it's supposedly enhances your productivity and I will bring you some the next time I see you. <laughs> okay. That's a deal. Okay. So, uh, yeah. So, um, so let me just say, right. Um, so all my Deep life, side. I have been really interested in the health and mental benefits of exercise, right? So mm -hmm. caring for our health, caring for our mental well-being. And I would say in the early days, right, when, when the health benefits were really um, dialed down to like the heart attack that didn't happen or the, you know, preventing metabolic syndrome, um, that does not make you the coolest kid in the room when everybody else is talking about <laughs> no attack, right? So, uh, so it definitely made me like the uncool kid in the room to be interested in that. And I say that, um, let me also temper that statement with just a little bit, right? So as much as like the concept of um, the words body sculpting give me hives a little bit because I, <laughs> I cringe a little bit when I hear that. <laughs> I'm also cautious about being too judgy because I, I, I want to be clear, especially when it comes to things like physical activity. Physical activity is really hard, right? We are wired evolutionarily to conserve energy and our ancestors who expended energy in unnecessary pursuits died, right? Because uh, mm -hmm. they died because they didn't have enough calories to support reproduction uh, or to support survival. And so we've carried that evolutionary trait of the need to conserve energy into a world that is somewhat incongruent with how we're wired. Um, so our bodies have evolved for a few resources, um, resources that are spread very far apart that we had to work together with other humans in order to secure. And now we live in a world that has many resources. Those resources are pretty close to us they don't require a lot of energy expenditure to get to, partially because of labor-saving devices and sometimes labor-saving services. Um, and so that also makes the, the idea of teamwork to secure um, some of those resources to survive somewhat irrelevant, right? So, um, so I say that, all that is to say, right, that physical activity is hard. And I know that what gets people to the table often is that word body sculpting, right? Because they are interested in how they look. They want, it starts there, but it's really a larger thing about, they want to feel better in the world. They want to um, feel better about themselves. So um, I think that, um, you know, what would concern me about that is I think that we need to have more durable sources of motivation. Um, I, I think that we perhaps oversell the idea that we can totally change our physique through mm. physical activity because that really doesn't take into account that we are genetically wired to have different body types. Um, there's a limit in terms of what we can do in terms of um, you know, changing our bodies to look like a particular norm. And so if that's our sole motivation, you know, we're gonna be able to peek behind the curtain pretty quickly and realize that it's not working. And then if that's your only source of motivation to keep moving, guess what? You're not going to move anymore, right? So, so I see it like as an entry point, but I think quickly we need to diversify and help people to see other benefits related to physical activity, especially like mental health benefits, because I think them seeing some of the um, really short-term benefits is a way to create a more enduring relationship with physical activity. I so appreciate you framing this 
conversation around like our our evolutionary predisposition to want to like as you said conserve calories my my brain wants to say sit on your butt um because so often i feel like these conversations in this space are about you know how to make clients do things or how to it just feels very shamey and blamey and negative and to recognize that like no sitting on the couch does feel good. You've got to have a reason that motivates you for you and what you want for yourself. Um, and kind of to your point about that lasting motivation, like there's a body of evidence that's showing that, you know, exercising because you want to look good in your skivvies has an expiration point. And if you haven't found some other reason to go like, you know, that you like it or that you have friends that do it or that it feels good, that, that's going to wane and then you revert. Then you get mad at yourself. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, with that, it, so it's, it's not just how our bodies are wired, but we're also in an environment that is wholly incongruent with how we've evolved. So, um, you know, one of the things that we know, right, you, we know about there's this big release of a variety of neurochemicals um, that contribute to our um, emotional well-being, our emotional regulation, our ability to learn, et cetera. Um, but what's super interesting is that when we have prolonged periods of inactivity, those so it's a reward, right? When we get that um, neurochemical um, uh, letdown when we are moving and when we're physically active. And so what's interesting is that our brains never evolve to have a rescue plan when there were prolonged periods of inactivity. Mm. So over time, when we are inactive, um, the basically those neurochemicals that get produced with people who are regular exercisers get down-regulated over time so that when the person comes back who's been inactive for a really long period of time starts moving again, they don't get those rewards, right? It feels really, really bad, right? And they're focused on why is everybody else feeling good? And what's wrong with me because I'm not feeling good? And so I think even just managing people's expectations so that they know that, um, you know, the brain didn't have a rescue plan for, right, for prolonged periods of inactivity because it just didn't exist, right, uh, centuries uh, ago. And so um, having the patience to recognize that you're almost retraining neural circuits, right, and retraining your uh, your uh, your body to be able to produce those neurochemicals again and get used to the fact that it can move again. Well, and and to set that expectation and there, that there's not anything wrong with you that that as that sensitivity has sunset a bit, like you said, those neurochemicals uh, begin to wane, and you are no longer as sensitive to that payoff. That knowing that's the case, uh, that this makes me think of. Um, you know, if you, if you know anything about, I know, you know, Leona, about cardiovascular energy systems and that, you know, it kind of takes a little while for the engine to warm up. And so, you know, the first five minutes of a run tend to be really unpleasant uh, as, as you're getting warmed up. And I, when I first was, you know, like running again after the recovery from my illness, um, I used to actually chant in my head to get myself over that hump. The first five minutes always suck. The first five minutes always suck. The first five minutes always suck so that I wouldn't stop. Because otherwise, it just feel like this. I'm gonna give up. That's amazing. That's an actually that's an amazing I still story. Do it. Um, I think I I'm, <laughs> I'm doing 
that too. Uh, my solution has been to go really, really slow. I used to be, um, I, you know, famously, I would be very impatient and go out of the gate too fast. And then after about a minute, I would just say, what am I doing here? Right? <laughs> so I, I definitely, um, I, I definitely resonate with that. You know, to, I, I want to go back to this idea that we're, we're a mismatch, right? Uh, with, with our environment, because I think it really matters a great deal. Um, and I think too, um, when we think about the wellness in industry, I'm always super cautious about how much responsibility, um, and you use the word shame, right? That we place mm -hmm. on people, that it's somehow their fault, um, if they're not doing it. And instead, I think we also need to, um, have a yes and, right? So we need to help, help people to be able to overcome that inertia and be able to move and to be able to take care of themselves. But we also need to think about our environments and policies and access to walking areas, um, access, you know, how we're protecting clean air and clean water so that we can actually swim in a lake, right? Um, how we are um, setting up our environments so that um, people um, have opportunities to commute to work on a bike path, right? Or um, alternatively, how we're like balancing um, some of the contexts and environments that we're in. So I think it's um, I think it's really meaningful to think about how we can be a little bit more holistic um, and recognize that all the changes that we've made in the environment may be successful from a capitalistic perspective, but may not always be good for us. And so just because we can doesn't mean we should. <laughs> Amen to that. Um, for the listener, you're listening to Better Than Fine. I'm your host, Arlene Marshall, and my guest today, as we are talking about the many different kinds of wellness, is Leona Brandween. And Leona, you, I'm going to throw back to what you're talking about right now, but also something that you mentioned earlier, I think all falls under the header of social determinants of wellness, right? That it's not just this one individual. And I think so often I see people using the phrase holistic wellness to refer to like, well, I can coach on sleep and spirituality and mindset and nutrition and, you know, getting you to move. And that's holistic because it's a whole person. Um, but what you're talking about is holistic beyond the whole person. Do you want to, do you want to speak to that at all? Yeah. Um, so um, it's such a great question, right? And it's also such a very complicated question. So, oh yeah, um, <laughs> I throw you the big ones because I know you can handle it. So, um, so I'll say, um, there are um, genetic, sociocultural, educational, economic, and environmental differences that we are all managing all the time in terms of how we live our lives, right? In an effort to be well. I don't think anybody doesn't want to be well. Um, and that's complicated, right? So I think often in the wellness space, and, and I know that we were certainly guilty of this um, when I was working in corporate wellness, but the employee base that we were looking at was largely a white collar employee base, right? So they were, a, a, it was a sedentary group. Um, so we could look at and make some assumptions about what their lives were like. I will also say not everybody works in that context, right? Um, and so um, there is, there are differences between physical activity that we engage in in our leisure time versus physical activity that's required because of our job which may be more repetitive, right? Which may um, outstretch our um, physical resources at any given point um, where we can start to do ourselves some harm and actually um, have some injuries on the job. And there's also some evidence that um, that physical activity 
has a little bit more of a muted effect on people's health than the physical activity that we engage in voluntarily um, and where we can really um, kind of um, regulate um, the amount that we invest so that we don't overdo it ourselves. So all of that is to say, um, as we look around, right, the differences are pretty profound. And I think that um, we need to give some attention to, um, to concepts like equity, right, and access to environments, even the concept of an environment like um, clean air um, in some um, economically depressed communities well, guess where they build highways? They don't build highways next to affluent communities because it's going to depress the property values, right? And those people tend to lobby well uh, in Washington. Instead, highways are built next to poorer communities. So there are things like air quality, right? When you think about even um, communities that are built next to bus stations and how and, and buses that are um, idling, right? And producing um, a lot of pollutants that, um, that end up really harming people. Um, it's, it's really something to consider, right? Um, in, in terms of um, that the access to the ability to be well is important for everyone and it's not equal for everyone. And so I, I think we need to look at some of those things. Um, and I think that we also need to start thinking of ourselves in terms of a community that's invested in one another, because when we raise the well-being of everyone, right, we can really um, make a difference um, in our own lives and our own well-being. So I don't see it as like a, a really zero-sum game. I know I'm, I'm talking uh, around a lot of different areas, but the social determinants of health are real, right? Um, whether or not we have access to education, whether or not we have access to um, employment, right, that is um, that supports our health, right, and doesn't harm our health, whether we have access to a living wage so we don't have to work two jobs instead of one job, all of these things really matter to our ability to be well. You cannot possibly get adequate sleep if you are working two eight-hour shifts in a row and trying to take care of your kids at the same time. That is just not going to happen. So I think that there are just some pragmatic realities behind that, and I think the you know our ability to affect that needs to be, happen um, at the policy level, right? Um, with governments and how we, um, in, how, in the perspectives that we take around how to ensure the most vulnerable in our society um, have access to the well-being that other people um, have just taken for granted their whole lives. Yeah, and I so appreciate that pragmatic unpacking of it. Um, I, I, knew, I knew I'd asked you a big expansive question and I also knew you could nail it because like you're saying, like we were joking about earlier, it's the unpopular kid on the playground, right? It's 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 much more fun to talk about, um, you know, what kind of bath bomb you think your followers should have than to talk about food deserts and policy around, um, you know, social determinants and pollution and clean water in Flint, right? Yes. Um, it's, it's way, way more fun and way easier for people to wrap their head around. Um, but I think if we're going to talk about all these different levels, the many kinds of wellness, it means talking about those things. Um, and so you're listening to Better Than Fine. My guest is Briona, geez, Leona Brandween, not Briona. You just got me so in my head, uh, Leona Brandween. And we're talking about the many kinds of wellness. Um, but I think that actually talking about bath bombs as a wellness prescription is a nice dovetail into this next idea that I want to explore with you, which is around, you know, you and I believe very strongly in the concept of evidence-based practice, right? That what we're going to recommend to a client or a student is going to be something that 
is informed by research or, you know, or, you know, underpinned by some kind of evidence and is appropriate for that person. Um, and you've described this idea of wellness as ideology. Um, mm. Do you want to speak to a little bit about what you mean by that phrase? And then also just the, the difference um, in those two core ideas? Sure. Um, so um, the word ideology, right, I think we're mostly familiar with it being a set of beliefs that drive a political or economic set of policies, right? Um, but I think it can be applied to a lot of different domains. And I think it can be applied to wellness too, right? So um, unlike something um, like, say, religion, which relies on faith about a number of unknowns that are undiscoverable, right? So the question of whether there's a higher power or what their nature is like, is probably undiscoverable. So it relies us to go, it, it, it means that we have to go on faith and we have to rely on faith. Um, on the flip side of that, when we're talking about human wellness and the body and, um, and how our bodies interact with the environment around us, what we know about human wellness continues to evolve and it's mostly discoverable because we can use the scientific method to discover that. Yay, so, Yay, science, right? So, and, and, right, I mean, there are things that we take for granted today that were very ideologically driven in the past, right? So the concept of the germ theory of disease, right? And we're in a pandemic right now, but the germ theory of disease, at one point, it was a mystery as to what caused disease. And so people thought that it was, you know, it was attributed to everything from evil spirits, right, to um, miasma, right, or um, bad night air, like odors were considered... Um, something that might cause disease. At one point, there was something called the big stink in Paris, right, where everybody was paranoid that they were going to get sick. Um, and it wasn't until there were scientists like um, Joseph Lister, um, Robert Koch, Louis Pasteur, who began discovering these microscopic agents, right, that could be minimized through sanitation and eventually leveraged through vaccination, um, that we really started to shift the needle on infectious disease. Even the concept of something like um, washing, you know, a physician washing their hands in between um, births that they were supporting between mothers reduced maternal infection rates and subsequently maternal um, mortality too. So we learned, um, we evolved, we were able to, um, we were able to increase or improve our practice based on some of those observations. And I think it's not much different today, right? So we have a scientific method that enables us to test ideas in a manner, and this is important, that minimizes our cognitive biases um, so that we are able to um, draw conclusions that are more likely to be true um, than draw conclusions that are likely to be faulty. It is imperfect, most certainly. Um, it evolves and it can be a very organic process over time. But um, it is important that we have um, some way, right, to be able to overcome those biases. And the other part about science that I think is super cool is that it's crowdsourced, right? So we have a lot of scientists that are inquiring about things and thinking about them from different perspectives from a lot of different areas. And they all turn to each other to see what's out there in the literature before they begin doing their own work. So it's like the learning doesn't start at the bottom of the hill every time, right? They're trying to build on work that's gone before. And so, um, you know, science tends to correct itself over time. And so, you know, we see new studies come out that can either confirm or disconfirm results 
Um, we look at a portfolio of evidence to make a determination rather than any one single study. Um, so it's, it's really cool that we have this, right? And it's something that is um, relatively new and has really contributed to a wild escalation in human knowledge, um, in civilization. Um, there are so many things that have emerged that are good from this. And you can imagine, right, if we were in the midst of a pandemic and we were still believing that it was evil spirits or Odin, yes. right, that had caused this, right? The fact that we were able to scientifically discover what had caused this gave us tools to be able to fight it to ensure that we were hopefully, you know, mitigating some of the harmful effects. Well, there's a few things I want to reflect back to you Um you know, the, the first is even just talking about that process of being in the pandemic, you know, I was in New York City, in Brooklyn, in March 2020. And I remember, you know, not wearing a mask to go to the store, um, when the outbreak had really started in earnest, and they started to shut the city down. But I had, I happen to have Clorox wipes, and Clorox wiping everything before I touched it when I went to the store. <laughs> it was like, because we thought it was touch transfer, right? And even just the quickness and evolution of understanding then, Mm -hmm. um, but I, I want to speak to, you know, you talked about, you know, not just the crowdsourcing of it, but the, you know, drawing conclusions, not presenting necessarily as fact. I know that this works in this way, but like, okay, we can imply based off of how most things work that this thing is going to work like this. So let's try it. And one thing that I always like to highlight about that is like, not everything's going to work for everybody. And if there's a wellness practitioner out there saying like, okay, you're going to do this thing just like this, you're going to get this outcome, boom, it always works because I know what I'm doing, that that person probably doesn't know what they're doing. They're probably just trying to sell you something because not everything works for everyone. And we all have a certain amount of like genetic and dispositional and experiential like variants <laughs> just in our humanity, like you're different than me, Leona. We can see it. If anybody's watching on YouTube, it's obvious that we are different and we are at different points in our lives. We are genetically different. Like we're going to react differently to the same, you know, in positive psychology, we call it an intervention. Um, but the movement prescription, the meditation, the whatever, it's going to be different, right? And to not put it off as, well, I know what it is. And that science doesn't work that way. And then it's not supposed to work that way. And so we shouldn't expect it to. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I'm going to quote the amazing coach Ted Lasso and say that every person is a different kind of person. And if you remember that, right, it, it helps a lot. So even as we are looking at what we're learning, right, with a broad-based population study that we might see um, in a, a scientific journal, even like recognizing, right, that the what that might be predicting is, you know, maybe 4% of the variance in a population helps us to be a little bit humble right, about what it mm -hmm. is that we're actually suggesting um, and that it's not a guarantee for every single person that they are going to emerge with the same results that they see in that scientific journal. There is, of course, variation right, amongst even the study subjects that were part of the original study, and there's certainly going to be variation um, through the population um, itself, especially if the population isn't matched. So I, I think it's really um, what you're pointing out, Darlene, is so very important um, because everybody has a different context. We talked about the, um, you know, the... Uh, 
sociological uh, influences on our well-being. Um, we can think about our genetic makeup, right, and how different that is. Even our own family situations, the environment that we're in, the air quality uh, in, that's local to us, um, you know, all sorts of things. It makes it very complicated and almost to the point where we could be like, oh, well, then we can't really predict anything because since everybody is so different, it should just be a, a free for all. I don't think that's true either, right? There's some yeah. middle ground, right? Where we can say, okay, here's what we know from the science. So odds are, right, that we can predict that it's more likely that you're gonna have this effect taking this approach, but maybe not, right? Your mileage may vary. And so let's test it out. But this is a really good place for us to start. Well, and that even within an individual, right? Like the, I think of some of the things, you know, when I was, when I was in MAP and some of the exercises we were doing pre-pandemic and doing them now, I'm going to have a different effect. And so I think to your point, it's about like test and retest, right? Like, let me try it. Let me try the thing that there's a good body of evidence to suggest. Let's take movement for an example. Like, okay, most people would agree at this point that for most people, most of the time movement is going to be good. And, you know, I so appreciate throughout this conversation that you've said physical activity and not exercise, because when we're talking about, you know, the mental health benefits, the, um, you know, productivity benefits, the, you know, pick, pick your benefit, going off and doing a thing you like that is active is a different effect than like having a personal trainer make you do burpees when you hate burpees, right? Very different effect. And most people are going to get a benefit from more activity when appropriate, right? And we can take that leap and try it. And then if you don't like it, let's use that information to try something else, right? And that that iterative process of kind of like science can be applied back to you as a person. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. I, so beautifully stated, right? Um, I love that idea of test and retest, right? Start with a small test of change. And if that doesn't work out, look at what happened and make some adjustments from there, right? So it would be the equivalent of if I watched, um, you know, the first 10 minutes of a movie and it was a terrible movie and I was just like, well, I'm never going to watch a movie ever again, right? <laughs> um, right? Like seriously, like, or if yeah. I read like, the first five pages of a book and I'm like, this book is terrible. I'm done with books, right? All I'm books never, are terrible. All books are terrible. I'm never doing that <laughs> my life, right? Of course, right? That seems so silly when we talk about something um, that we are so familiar with, like reading books or watching movies. I think that the same thing applies to movies. So what you're trying to tell me, Lena, is all entertainment is horrible and that it erodes my well-being, right? <laughs> I just said it. It must be true. Yeah. Right? Oh, all movies and all books are terrible. Um, please, please strike that from the record. <laughs> I will not hold you accountable to that statement. So how else do you think, you know, an informed individual, an interested individual, someone who wants to be proactive in their in meaningful wellness practice, how else might they parse out this theological noise um, from meaningful practice in their own right or for their clients? Mm. Whew, such a wonderful question. So um, I give you the now, big ones. <laughs> I, I'll tell you, Darlene, you know how to um, how to um, serve up some whoppers here. So, um, <laughs> so a couple of things that I I might say, right, in, in terms of distinguishing between, um, you know, we often say let the buyer beware, right, um, and and we're all familiar with that term, but what does it mean in practice? 
So I think that um, as we are scanning the environment, right, and looking for um, credible sources of information in the environment, some of the things that we can look at include, um, is this based on any peer-reviewed evidence, right? Are, are we seeing anything that where we know it's emerging from a scientific journal where there were many eyes that were looking at this information and suggesting that, um, that this information is valid? Um, the second thing is that um, I think we need to ensure that, um, that we're practically wise and that we're balancing multiple conflicting goals and motivations for well-being. So I will say I've seen some fitness movements that have done a wonderful job of leveraging um, a sense of community, right? A sense of, um, of uh, investment um, and perhaps, you know, motivation for goals, but may become so hyper-focused on pushing the envelope of human limits that those limits can be exceeded and it costs people through injury or burnout. And, and that yeah. cost can be real, right? Like costing someone a lifelong love and pursuit of a particular sport to me is way too much expense. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I've got a daughter who competes in triathlon at the elite level. Um, and my goal as a parent through all of that has not been to get her to a college where she's gonna race triathlon. My goal all the way through has been to protect her lifelong love of this sport or some other way, right, of being active in the world and finding um, the sense of meaning and passion that she derives from that in something else. And I think that we certainly can beat it out of people um, by um, developing these myopic views around, um, you know, I'm just going to crush this workout with 100 burpees and, um, and I always think about that and I say, okay, why, <laughs> why? why, why are you doing that? Right. Um, and so, and, and it may be that you're very motivated by that, but I also think we need to attune to our multiple motivations, um, and to hold on to our wallets. If it seems as though we're being asked to pursue a single motivation um, with at the expense of some of the other aspects of our lives or well-being. Yeah, I think it's helpful to consider when someone is giving you any kind of wellness or fitness information, if that person is also trying to sell something related to the thing that they are trying to sell you the benefits on. Um, and so if they're out there, you know, pitching mushroom coffee, <laughs> and they also sell mushroom coffee. Well, there's probably an ulterior motive there. Um, and I used to, to this particular style of fitness that you're talking about as a, a functional movement focused trainer who worked with um, special populations primarily. Uh, I used to say that those kind of fitness movements pay my rent <laughs> because inevitably somebody was getting hurt and then they were going to need some, gu some guidance. Absolutely. Uh, so Darlene, I think you're like such a, an exemplar of this, of, of somebody who really understands how the complicated nature of our human bodies and how we can balance some of those multiple motivations. Um, because as you said, right, um, they're paying your rent, right? So the people, you know, when you're doing the, the when you have the myopic focus of doing 100 and then 101 burpees and then 102 um, at the expense of anything else, inevitably we can push our limits in a way where it does compromise other things. And it's often um, we take our health and we take our bodies for granted 
until they come under some duress or some harm. And then we quickly realize how important it is to protect them. So I, I will just say I have had such admiration for you since I've met you because I know um, I know how um, you have walked that walk yourself and you have been able to um, see and understand how important it is that it's almost like a, a sacred duty, right, that we have to people in order to be able to um, support them in being healthy and well their whole lives, right, and not just in, in getting to a, a particular goal. Uh, well, I'm, I was glad when Eric cut to your face instead of mine, because I can feel that I am blushing. Uh, so thank you. Um, you know, in MAP, we talk about calling and purpose and meaning. And um, I feel that way very strongly about the types of things that you and I are talking about. And um, the the compliment resonates deeply, Leona, because of, of who you are to me. And uh, thank you. I am now very embarrassed. Um, but we're going to leave it there. So uh, you've been listening to the Better Than Fine podcast. My guest has been Leona Brandween as we talk about the many kinds of wellness. And Leona, thank you so much for your time and your energy and for uh, sharing your brain candy with us. I so appreciate you. Oh, my goodness. Same back to you, my friend. Uh, as I said, I know that you were uncomfortable with that compliment, but I'll say <laughs> you're, uh, you're a pro and you're an exemplar at this. And the world is better because Darlene Marshall is in it. So thank you. Oh, I think my heart just exploded. Okay. Well, now that I'm thoroughly embarrassed, uh, you can support the show by subscribing on whatever podcast, um, podcast platform or YouTube that you are listening on. If you're on YouTube, go ahead and hit that like button. Uh, leave us your comments, your thoughts, your ideas, your questions, because we do use them to feed forward in the show. And if you want to find me, you can do so on LinkedIn. Uh, you can also find me on Instagram. I am Darlene.coach, and I would absolutely love to hear from you. So we're going to leave it there. And thanks. Thank you.